from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, hosting this week from the Walter Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C., scene of the 2015 Green Build Conference and Expo. On today's edition, Walmart's sustainability journey, the brave new world of buildings and data, and Toyota hits the gas in Silicon Valley. That's Life in the Fast Lane, this week on 350. Hello, it's Friday, November 20th. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Lauren, you're back home in Oakland. How's it going? I am. It's going well. Holding it down at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza, as always. <laughs> Great. So before we get into the Green Biz Week in Review, one of the things that happened this week, I don't even know if you're aware of this or thought about it. Maybe you did, Lauren, is this is your one-year anniversary at Green Biz. It is. LinkedIn reminded me in my email. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I just thought, first of all, I'd ask you, what do you think? I mean, what, 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 when you look back at the year, you came from the Silicon Valley Business Journal. You've been writing about business and technology. Now you're in the bigger world of business, technology, and sustainability. What's your impression, first of all, of how that's different or what's new and exciting for you? It's good. I feel like I'm just now really uh, fully have my bearings to the point where I can sort of go out and seek my own stories out, which is always exciting. Um, I had covered a lot of issues with transportation and housing, uh, big topics in Silicon Valley and the whole Bay Area right now. But um, the environment was always just sort of something that was an afterthought, sort of. We know the traffic's really bad, and that's horrible for companies trying to hang on to their employees, and it's inefficient, and oh yeah, it also isn't good for the environment. But it was never really like a focal point of any of the reporting I was doing, so it's been really great to dive into that and look at... um, overall emissions cuts schemes for both companies and cities and then to see the cutting edge stuff which is what i really like to write about uh, sort of the tech side which we're going to get into with toyota um and then their competitors like lyft and uber and all those guys so how do you view the environmental piece of this now uh, I think it's it's growing in importance, which is interesting. Um, I can't say that I knew that was going to happen at the time I when I joined you guys, but it really does seem like it's becoming more part of the mainstream conversation. I think that's some of that's due to companies like Ford and uh, Toyota, again, uh, and Tesla that are really like putting these issues into the fore and talking about it as part of their uh, overall corporate strategy. But it's also by no means limited to transportation, one of the other areas that's most intriguing to me is supply chains, which seem like this sort of really daunting, global, far-reaching thing. Um, But there are huge environmental implications there for the types of energy you're using and also a lot of the social issues like labor and that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, you've you've been a great great addition to this team, I just want to say. And I thought I'd use this opportunity. You don't know this is what I'm about to say. But starting today... You're you're not going to be associate editor Lauren Hepler. You're going to be senior editor Lauren Hepler. Congratulations! Oh my God! Wow! <laughs> Thank you. Soraya has no idea what's going on here. Our our technical director. Uh, that was quite a surprise. Thank you, Joel. You're not even here in person for me to thank you. I'll get the hug in a couple of weeks when I'm back. I, <laughs> I, I, I hope it was okay. I unveiled that in front of the uh, the whole Green Biz world, but I just thought it would be fun to let you know. 
Yeah, good news, not bad news. So, yes, very exciting. I told you there was going to be an announcement, and I think you maybe were a little nervous. But first, Ms. Senior Editor, let's begin with the Green Biz Week in Review. All right, so Joel, you may be a green build this week, but our senior writer Barbara Grady was also busy in the realm of building tech. She was covering a cool project, um, which is actually a spin-out from Google. It's a company called Flux, and they're looking at building a database of toxic building materials, and they're looking not only at the health impacts, but also the environmental impacts of very specific types of concretes and all the different uh, materials you come into contact with in the construction industry. Is that something you're hearing about on the ground in D.C.? Yeah, I mean, it's one of many stories. I mean, the, the data piece is certainly part of this, and we're just hearing so much about data and buildings and really getting into the metrics and really getting into the monitor and getting into the, the real-time da- dashboards, and, and so it's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. And I know one thing that the U.S. Green Building Council in particular has been toying around with is this idea of real-time building analytics uh, and where you're looking at uh, sort of how much energy a building is using, how much water a building is using. And one part of that is obviously to quantify the impact, but I know there's also sort of like a behavioral component to it that's interesting in terms of maybe if people know what their impact is on a building, it will spur them to, to be a little more conservationist maybe. Is that part of the conversation? at Greenbuild? Yeah, feedback loops are always important. I mean, that's, you know, for any kind of change, we, we need that in our lives. I mean, the Nest computer, uh, the Nest uh, thermostat is, is you know, one kind of feedback loop where you lear- it learns from you, you learn from it, but you can see in real time what's going on and you can see how much you're saving and all that. And that's, that's what, you know, we all like to know, how good are we doing? It's like a Fitbit for a building in some ways. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, very much part of it. But there's another people part of it, which we'll talk a little bit later when we talk more about um, about green build. But yeah, the people component of buildings, which frankly is everything in, in many ways when it comes to the environment, that's looming large here. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to the technology angle, I did want to get your thoughts on another story we did this week, which was out of the Rocky Mountain Institute. They have this group called the Business Renewables Center, the BRC that we've talked about on previous podcasts as well. Um, but they're really looking at sort of growing the market for corporate renewable energy. And I covered a fun story this week. They've released this tool. I've kind of thought about it as like a Zillow for renewable energy. And what I mean by that is you have this online platform platform, Zillow would be the real estate industry example, where a would-be buyer is sort of looking around at their options. And so in that analogy, uh, if I'm looking for a new house in Oakland, uh, which obviously I cannot afford that, um, I would log on and search for property listings and they would spit them all them out, the ones that fit my criteria. Well, what RMI is doing is doing that for renewable energy. They're having clean energy developers input their different solar projects and wind projects. Right now it's across the U.S and they can do it uh, by different megawatts uh, if they're looking to sell the actual electricity or just sell the renewable energy credits. And companies, right now they're limiting it to their membership, which is 66 companies uh, like eBay and some others, but they can log on and search and see, I want to make an investment in clean energy. What's a project that I might be able to do that for? Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things that's going on right now and over the past year or so, and I think it's just going to be accelerating in the, in the coming months and years, is as companies 
are getting, you know, more and more companies are making more and more commitments to renewables. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's one thing. It's it's relatively easy to say we're going to hit 50 or 100 or whatever percent renewable energy for our operations or our supply chain or our data centers. Actually doing it turns out to be not so easy. Uh, first of all, there's lots of different choices. We've talked a little bit about this in this program. Uh, you, do, you know, do you build by, you know, virtual PPAs, there's so many different choices and there's so many different projects going on at any one time that knowing what to do, what's most cost effective, what's least risky, uh, what's in your long-term interest, what's maybe syncs with the communities in which you do business where you need to source the energy and, and maybe want to support economic development. It's so incredibly complicated that every company is struggling. It is. And what RMI is really trying to do here, the Business Renewable Center, uh, the tool, by the way, is called the BRC Marketplace. And what they're trying to do is really play the role of convener. They're not actually trying to cut into the market for consultants, lawyers, other sorts of third party brokers that figure out the details of how you broker a power purchase agreement or a virtual power purchase agreement or any of these things. They're really just trying to facilitate the match at the early stage while a project still needs funding and a corporation is looking to get involved with the project. Sounds good to me. What's next? Yeah, so totally switching gears. As you alluded to, we're going to talk about Toyota. I went to a really fun event last Friday in San Francisco. Uh, it was actually at AT&T Park, which is the home of Major League Baseball's San Francisco Giants. Uh, and just across uh, a little bridge from the stadium, uh, they wouldn't let us take drives around the infield, unfortunately. Um, we went to a parking lot, and I was driving this really trippy little car. It's a combination motorcycle compact car. It's like a one-and-a-half-seater, uh, bright neon colors. You can see the pictures on our, our website Um but it, it was really fun to drive. We went through a little cone obstacle course. And before I got in, the guy said, you know, you have to lean with the turns. And I mean, I ride my bike to work, but I'm not exactly a motorcycle aficionado. So, so it was a fun little fun little trip. But um, the, the point of that was not just for, for me to say I have more street cred. It was um, to talk about this whole concept of urban mobility and sort of how we're thinking about issues like right-sizing our vehicles, making them smaller based on space constrictions in cities, um, which I know has been a big topic that we talk about at Verge and our, our primary technology and sustainability event, as well as stories on greenbiz.com. So I actually got to drive this very vehicle uh, uh, in July in Aspen at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's really quite interesting. It, it, and it does, um, I'm not a motorcycle rider either, but, but uh, I really, you, you really get the sense of leaning in, but you also get the sense of, of how cool this uh, sort of personal mobility uh, world can be because you know it's I mean it's an all-weather thing it's, it's it's sort of built like a football helmet with all the safety you know crash protection it's not a flimsy little golf cart where you're open to the elements and you know could get bowled over at any time by an Escalade uh, this is a you know a, it's a really safe fun little vehicle so I'm glad you got a chance to, to drive it 
Yeah, it was fun, but it was also part of a, a broader uh, sort of initiative for Toyota. They, you might have seen, have announced a $1 billion investment over the next five years, specifically focused on artificial intelligence research in Silicon Valley. So there were more than a few promotional videos involving robots and that sort of thing. Um, but this event was really also sort of uh, Toyota staking a flag in the ground. We know that other automakers we've covered Ford, Mercedes, all types, BMW, they've, they've been in Silicon Valley with these R&D shops for a while. So this is really Toyota sort of saying, we're here and trying to tap into this whole smart mobility market. So, so who's not in Silicon Valley? I mean, uh, the, the big American automobiles of Ford, I guess, is. But I'm wondering, you know, what, who, if, are they going to get left behind or are they just finding their own path where they can do it from Detroit or Stuttgart or somewhere else? At this point, it's really hard to find the ones that aren't there. Um, Ford was one of the last ones um, that had uh, previously last year in my in my previous job I had been covering. They had a really small group of like uh, 10 developers in downtown Palo Alto looking at sort of very long-term software stuff. And then they realized, whoa, to, to stay competitive, we need to really invest in an R&D shop where we can be working with the actual vehicles because that's what they're... Uh, competitors have been doing. Um, so you ha- there are some like Kia, I know is one, General Motors, that are very active in the investment side in Silicon Valley, looking at auto tech startups, but maybe less so um, in sort of building hardware out in Silicon Valley. So are th- is there enough new stuff to invent that all these companies with tens of millions, or in Toyota's case, a billion dollars, that th- we're going to see that much new technology coming out of Silicon Valley, how different is driving going to be? Well, some of it is about the driving. You have obviously these infotainment combination information and entertainment systems that are coming out of Silicon Valley where you've got advanced navigation tie-ins with things like your wearable technology, like making your uh, Apple Watch compatible with your car um, and some of those more novelty things. But I think what a lot of them are really looking to Silicon Valley now for is business model innovation and playing with some of the ride sharing companies, the car sharing companies, uh, and figuring out how they adapt that to their own business models. And to that end, I also talked to Masanori Yamato, who is a veteran Toyota executive who was recently dispatched to Silicon Valley to serve as the corporate manager at Toyota Ventures. So he's going to be really involved in this big new investment in the region. And he spoke a lot about um, not only the, the tech side and artificial intelligence, but also powertrains and sort of how you're fueling vehicles. And Toyota is interesting because they have really keyed into fuel cells which is kind of an outlier in the auto market at this point. A lot of people are saying um, too cost prohibitive. It competes with building out EV infrastructure. But here's what he had to say about how Toyota is placing their bets on EVs, hybrids, and yes, fuel cells. One idea we had is what our fuel cell vehicle Mirai can offer. Uh, It works as a power source in case of a disaster or emergency. Uh, so that way, that kind of way of contributing to the community. So these overall, um, you know, not only about economical growth, but uh, more social sustainability enhanced is our uh, concept of our small mobility society. 
Got it. And one of the things I did want to ask about, you mentioned sort of Toyota's work on fuel cells and then also a project like the iRoad that is based on an electric power source. So just curious Mm -hmm. how you think about from a long-term innovation standpoint, how you balance different sorts of power sources. The strategy we have in place is to basically cover all different power sources as of now. So we have, uh, you know, conventional internal combustion engines, both gas and diesel, and we have hybrid vehicle, we have plug-in hybrid, battery electric vehicle, and fuel cell. So we have everything. But how we how we structure all these different power sources is uh, currently because of uh, uh, a lack of uh, cruising range for electric vehicle, um, if you want to keep it as uh, as affordable as uh, you know, conventional cars rather than really high-end uh, vehicles. Uh, we see electric vehicle is more for a shorter distance use use case, and the fuel cell, uh, as opposed to that, uh, it could uh, it could go on for 300 miles uh, and on uh, with uh, with one charge, um, and together with uh, hydrogen is really the most abundant species, uh, gas species in, on the Earth. So we see uh, potential of uh, hydrogen-based uh, society overall. Um, so uh, communities powered by hydrogen and also house and vehicle can be also powered by uh, fuel cell. Um, so in terms of uh, kind of a usage, in terms of uh, the cruising distance you want to go to, We'll see a mix of both, and but as technology evolves, maybe you see you know a merge of all those uh, technologies. We don't know yet, but uh, as of now, we we are trying to be prepared for any path. So we'll have to stay tuned and see how the race between EVs and fuel cells and all of this pans out. But I am excited to see how Toyota fits into the bigger picture with all of these automakers, sort of hitting accelerate in Silicon Valley. So Joel, you're in both of our old stomping grounds up in Washington D.C. How's it going? How how are things at Greenbuild? It's uh, another great event. You know, they get uh, forty thousand people here every year, uh, or wherever it is. It's going to be in L.A. Uh, next year. It was in New Orleans last year, and um, you know, I there's always these great speakers. James Cameron uh, did the opening keynote, and uh, our senior writer uh, Mike Howard got a few words with him. I don't. We'll see if uh, what he does with that uh, on Greenbiz. Um, but uh, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of themes. One is that everything's about data, as we were saying before. But there's this whole notion about, uh, that I kept hearing. I heard it several times in my first few hours here around biophilic design. So that sounds, you know, a little weird. Uh, and you, you tease it out. What that means is it's, it's really about design that looks at humans and life 
And, you know, and, and again, that, that gets real woo-woo real fast. But, you know, looking at, at the, not, not only the human health and human well-being aspect of this, but, but you know, how that fits with the environmental piece, how those two fit together. So it's, it's one thing to have non-toxic buildings, but it's one thing, it's another thing to have non-toxic buildings with uh, great air quality and uh, <clears throat> great spaces and, and natural light. and every, So it's, it's really building, bringing in the, the health movement with the green building movement. And there seems just to be a lot of efforts in that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something we're hearing more about uh, at, at our events as well as in the reporting we're doing. So what does that mean in practice? How might some of these things actually work? Well, the thing that uh, I found most impressive was a display or, or demonstration at the booth of uh, United Technologies Corporation. Now, whether you know that name or not, you probably know some of their uh, big brands like uh, Otis Elevators and Carrier Air Conditioning and dozens of others. Um, but they've really been a leader in this for a long time. And uh, what they're doing this year is they're showing uh, the results of a, of a uh, cognitive function study uh, that they did with Harvard uh, Medical School, actually looking at the impact of green buildings on what, what they call cognitive function, of people's uh, ability to carry out certain tasks. And there's a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of different ways to measure that on uh, different things that we can ask people to do around information use and crisis response and and focused activity level and the applied activity level, just sort of geeky psychological terms, task orientation, information seeking. And uh, this is, those have been around for a long time. But what they did is they took uh, uh, 24 participants over uh, two weeks on six days, and they looked at uh, primarily what was the impact of just giving office workers you know, uh, low uh, VOC, sort of uh, indoor air pollutants, and high ventilation. Right. And you say, well, OK, what's the deal there? Certainly, obviously, if you don't make people sick, uh, you know, that's but but, it, but the ventilation part is, is really interesting. And the, the challenge is that we spend so much of the time. And if you look around the green building, they spend all the time looking at energy. Uh, a lot of this is about energy. And that's good. We want to save energy. Energy relates to, to climate change and all that. But from a building owner's perspective, energy is like one percent of of their costs. Uh, 10% of it is rent, and 90, you know the other 89 or so percent is is labor. You know, it's people, and mm-hmm. so if you can make people even a little tiny bit more productive, you're going to save many, many, many times more what uh, you're going to save. If, you know, if you even if you just save all the energy in the world, um, and so so that's what this is about. It's about What's the impact on people and their productivity, and and can you measure it and and, and relate it to dollar terms? Well, it's given me flashbacks to some of the intern caves I worked at <laughs> years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm curious though to sort of put this in context. I know you did have the chance to catch up with sort of one of the preeminent uh, speakers in the world of green buildings, and that was Rick Fedrizi with the U.S. Green Building Council. Yeah. So Rick, I've known a long, long time. He it was one of the co-founders of the organization back in the in the 90s. Uh, actually, came out of United Technologies company we were just talking about. He was part of the Carrier Air Conditioning Group, and um, he's also announced uh, this year that he's going to be stepping down in about a year. It's sort of a, a very long goodbye, but uh, it's given a chance for their uh, their COO to uh, uh, come in and start to take over the the reins, and. Um, you know, Rick is very thoughtful, and, and he uh, has a lot to say about things. But 
I went to an executive luncheon on the opening day here, and, and it struck me that so much of what they were talking about, that over the years, the U.S. Green Building Council, they've got LEED, of course, but they've got different standards called SITE and WELL and GRESBY and PEER and, and TERRY and all these different things. And I sort of, you know, got this sense of irony that U.S. Green Building Council was originally created to make sense out of the marketplace, to simplify a lot of different standards that were evolving in the early days of green building. Now, all of a sudden, they've created this alphabet soup of uh, themselves of new standards. So I sat down with Rick right after the lunch, and you'll hear a little bit of that in the background. And I talk with them, and about not just about uh, sort of what's going on there, but sort of his trajectory as he begins to look at his last year um, and, and how this whole green building movement has come along. What we are doing, and it's it's somewhat ironic. Years ago, um, Joel, people would ask me, like, you know, LEED is really great, and you've got LEED ND and LEED commercial interiors and LEED for existing buildings, but when are you going to do LEED for a city? And I actually, um, I actually chuckled internally, uh, thinking, you know, well, that's ridiculous. How, how can one standard actually look at the complex universe of a city with all of the intricacies and trying try to, through a series of points or credits or standards, develop something that made sense. So I used to just kind of write it off. As the organization started evolving, as we formed GBCI, as we allowed GBCI to become the machine that would help us as an organization generate revenue that would go right back to fulfilling the mission of USGBC, then um, we decided to open the door to other standards. So looking at the WELL system for human health and, and performance, looking at the PEER standard for uh, electric grid and uh, integrity and, and performance, looking at SITES, which was developed by the uh, American Society of Landscape Architects originally and the uh, Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, having the ability to um, uh, put EDGE, uh, the IFC World Bank collaboration system together, Taking seven now systems and putting them together with lead, it's really funny. I'm starting to see this fabric be meshed in front of my eyes that is actually starting to look like it's addressing a big part of the complexity of that city. You know, when we start looking at, at ways to really measure and affect carbon related to every aspect of a city, when we can start looking at a few more things on infrastructure, the way that we value the, the properties associated with this, this whole dynamic, we are in fact moving towards the ability to have standards that will maybe through uh, uh, some kind of, of high-end technology, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's a way of understanding what that language of all those standards do when they're all put into the same place. But someday we will have a performance rating for, cis, for cities, for communities, for, for big places that matter, because that is, everybody knows that's where the greatest uh, opportunities for uh, affecting um, climate and, and, and water issues and poverty and the things that, that matter. Really, at the city scale, it's, it's really where we have to be someday. So this whole idea of having too many standards under, or, is that okay? Do you become, the USGBC become a, a house of brands uh, where the USGBC itself is less important than sites or edge or well or lead? I hope the future of USGBC is to someday, um, I want to say this effectively, 
someday USGBC um, will become less important. It was never intended to be a uh, uh, you know a large organization that that uh, becomes uh, uh, well. Let's use IBM as an example. IBM uh, was the biggest and and the best and the most awesome, and and then they were not and they had to reinvent themselves and develop another platform for the future. One of the things, and this starts right back with my first conversations with David Gottfried and Mike Italiano, when USGBC and the entire idea came about, this idea was to look at the next model of what an environmental NGO would look like. And we made a very conscious decision back then to invite business to the table, and that was not common 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, business was the enemy, so keep them outside the gate. We invited business to the table. We wanted to integrate our relationship with the environment with the relationship with business, learn from them, inspire them, have more opportunities to create products, programs, systems, services that all fed into this, created jobs, created economic opportunity. And in doing so, what we've done is I think we've created the new model of NGO for the future. Call it a B Corp, call it a for-profit, for-benefit organization. Whatever that is, the idea is um, I, I, I have a kind of a, a Star Wars uh, uh, kind of vision in my head where, you know, the mothership explodes but, but doesn't go away because now hundreds of small life pods have gone out from that and they are doing the most effective work because they're laser driven at the issues that matter most. But they also, because they will be part, hopefully, of the GBCI system, they will have connective tissue that ties all that data and all that information back together again, where we can have the, the ability to do the most with it. So it's been so successful in creating all these little pods is that such that lead for blank has become sort of a, a meme in the sustainability mm -hmm. world that we're creating lead for restaurants right. or lead right. for cars or lead for for small business or something. Right. Well, what, what are some of the lead fours that you've chuckled at? Well, I've chuckled at, um, well, you know, the, the ones I haven't chuckled at are lead for transportation and lead for food safety. Because I think those are two areas that could, could benefit tremendously from having the integrity and I, I will say I'm proud of my organization for uh, for always through our committee process through the amazing stakeholders that we have as a part of the development standard that we we institute um, governance at a very high level we institute a process uh, we make mistakes I'm not saying we don't make mistakes but we will never intentionally deceive or, or do anything like that uh, I wish the transportation industry uh, hello Volkswagen wagon. Um, I, I actually have a working blog called VWTF and um, looking at the uh, the opportunity to look at food safety. How many more stories do we have to have about contaminated food killing some ch child somewhere? Um, so lead could really benefit them. But I've actually, uh, the one that I do chuckle about because I just think it's a whole horrific proposition to begin with is lead for cruise ships. Um, lead for um, uh, uh, um, Oh, I don't know. There, there's, there's probably hundreds of those examples, but I think that you know the thing is, lead, lead actually has um, kind of uh, gone away from a, a noun and is becoming more of a verb. People are saying, you know, that's very lead-like, or that is, uh, that's leadish, and 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 in defining a, a process or or some kind of program, and and that's kind of flattering. We're excited about that. So finally, uh, you're, this is the beginning of the end of your tenure in the sense of you've now a year, I guess, one more 
uh, green build away from stepping down. Um, so this is the first green build here that uh, since you've announced your uh, the transition. Right. How does it feel this year? Uh, it, you know, this is the, probably one of the most fulfilling, amazing journeys of my life. And having, um, having had the absolute luxury to look at a point in time where our organization uh, is healthy, um, we have, um, I, I will say we have money in the bank. We, as an organization, have done something unique. Uh, we've basically created our own endowment. Um, we've got a significant amount of capital that we have put in, in the bank to be the future of an organization that someday, someday may be compromised by a number of different political or economic situations. So we, we the mission can always move forward. Um, we've redone our governance process, our board of directors, uh, a very large board um, from, the, from the industry is now being replaced by a very small board of, of external leaders at a very high level that can help this organization maybe go to a new place. And, and most importantly, I have had the luxury, and this has not happened a lot, I have had the luxury of working so closely with the man that will replace me, uh, our COO Mahesh Ramanajam that will replace me next year. Um, he is, uh, he is a man that I learn from every single day. His, his business savvy is immense. His heart and his spirituality um, are, uh, are equal measure to that. And, and he brings that to the organization. He brings it to our, our customers, as you, as you saw today, brings it to our staff and, and our members. And, and that's, it doesn't get any better than that. Walking away from an organization after you've put so much of your life into it uh, would really hurt if you didn't feel it would be taken care of for the next generation. Yeah, well, that's a good organizational description, but Rick, you and I have known each other for a long time, so I'm going to ask you again, how does it feel? It It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit scary, Joel. It really is, because you know what? Um, I, I actually have, uh, it's not my philosophy, I actually heard this uh, this quote years ago, and I, I actually live by it. Uh, my children both give me credit. They say no one jumps off ledges better than you do. And, um, and, the, and the quote was actually, uh, you must always strive to obsolete your greatest triumph. And I think that when you, when you think you're at the absolute pinnacle of whatever it is, except for personal relationships, which you should always just keep that as, as uh, uh, sacred, but if you if you have a professional uh, opportunity, or you are an artist, even, or you are a musician, your greatest triumph. You might win five Academy Awards for something, but does that mean you're done? And and I don't believe in that. I believe that you, you know, it, even if you, even if. You know, history says, well, <clears throat> he never did anything as good as what he did at USGBC. I'm okay with that because whatever I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do. I have learned so much on this journey about not only, you know, bricks and mortar, steel, glass, energy, water, waste materials. I have learned about people. I have been brought into some of the most horrific conditions that humanity faces in, in third world countries and, and been able to, um, in some cases, say, I, I can do something about this condition to make their lives a little bit better. And then I've been in some situations where I've had to say to myself, I can't do anything about that. This is... 
this level of poverty is something that I don't know anyone that has ever really seen it or experienced it. And and so the, the idea is, what, what can I do? I'm just going to stay focused on uh, other opportunities, um, other ways of, of giving back and communicating uh, what I've learned uh, to the next group. My book, Green Think, um, is, uh, is really a message to millennials about, you know, um, it, that it's okay. If you, you know, if you grew up as a capitalist like I do, I spent 25 years at a major corporation, don't be ashamed if you've got green aspirations. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. Use all of your intellect and your political power and your, your, your ideas um, to do the best work that you can do. And that's kind of what I try to do. Yeah. Awesome. What a great journey. And it's not over. So thanks so much, Rick. Thank you, Joel. So where does Green Build go from here? Well, it goes about 3,000 miles west to Los Angeles uh, for next year. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting event for probably, you know, typical star-studded. They have star-studded events everywhere they go these days. But it's also going to be Rick Fedrizzi's last year, so it's going to be kind of this uh, big uh, sort of celebration of him. And, and of course, you know, we'll see where all these trends are going. Uh, are healthy buildings really uh, going to become part of the mainstream, or is it just the fad of 2015? I, I think the, the former, but uh, we'll stay tuned. All right, so now is the point in the podcast when we talk about what is going on at GreenBiz. Joining us this week is Hugh Byrne, who is GreenBiz's Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing, also known as the man responsible for bringing us GreenBiz.com in its current beautiful incarnation. So Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and wow, such a great intro. I always think of myself as jack of all trades, master of none. So you, you made me sound very, very authoritative there. We're a very official podcast, Hugh. Come on. Um, so let's talk a little bit about where we are in the whole sustainability green hype cycle. Obviously, we go through ups and downs, but we've got COP21 coming up. Lots of talk about big uh, corporate climate commitments on things like clean energy. What are your thoughts on sort of where we are now with green marketing, if you even really want to use that term? I, I don't want to use that term. And that's actually <laughs> one of the things that I think is, is great about where we're at now, because if you look back, oh, let's say seven or eight years ago, there was an awful lot of talk and an awful lot of interest in green marketing. And it was really focused more on marketing than it was on substance. And there were a lot of companies that were basically wanting to kind of paint themselves as being, um, you know, eco-conscious and, and, you know, green marketing sitting right next to greenwashing. And we used to see a lot of that, you know, in terms of activity that we had on greenbiz.com, people advertising that way or companies trying to advertise around messages without necessarily advertising around substance. And it used to be a popular thing that people were searching on. I think today, though, it's a much more, um, you know, we've sort of been through the recession and come out the other side. And I think people who wanted to just sort of paint themselves around the concept of just being a green brand have sort of moved on from that somewhat simplistic notion and are really focused more on substantive issues around the way that they act, around the products that they uh, create, and just overall thinking about it as how they 
you know, gain a competitive edge in the marketplace. Right, right. I know even on the editorial side, some of our all-time greatest hits, most read pieces are about how to avoid greenwashing exactly. and get away from exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. Those, those in terms of like traffic on the site used to be monsters, you know, things around greenwashing and avoiding it. Mm-hmm. In terms of what's different now then, I know you're really active on Twitter, got quite a following going. What, what are you seeing in terms of the way people are responding to, like I said, more corporate climate commitments? specifically around 100% renewable energy or other pockets of activity you're seeing? Uh, lots of lots of activity there. And, and as we were talking a little bit off um, off the mic earlier, just a lot of enthusiasm building up for, for COP21 and people wanting to and feeling hopeful about that. Uh, and also looking at it a little bit with uh, a little bit more caution, just sort of based on sort of prior experiences I can recall from prior cycles of Copenhagen and of how much buzz and how much there act of activity there was on Twitter and sort of the letdown that came from that. I think people coming into it now, as, as I said, we're seeing a lot of, of both traffic on the site and also just activity on social media around it. But I think people are looking at it with, you know, optimism, uh, but I think based in reality as well. So that's, again, a hopeful sign. Mm-hmm. The ever popular cautious optimism. Cautious optimism, yes, yeah. yes. Guarded optimism. Uh-huh. Gotcha, gotcha. So what does this all mean for Green Biz? We have, the podcast audience has now heard quite a lot about Verge and sort of this tech meets sustainability angle. Um, but you also are obviously out in front on sales and marketing for Green Biz 16, which is coming up in February. Can you talk about sort of how you balance these different types of events? Well, you know, GreenBiz is really kind of interesting from the standpoint that we have our roots really in sustainability and we have kind of as our core audience, people who are sustainability practitioners, either, you know, working in large corporations and, you know, titles like sustainability director and also, you know, the whole sort of consultants and ecosystem around that. What's been interesting is kind of the evolution of our site and how we have also been drawing in a lot of new people who are coming at it from different kind of functional areas within the organization. So people who are involved with buildings, people who are involved specifically with energy, people who are involved with IT uh, and with fleets. And so it's it's a really kind of interesting kind of extension of what sort of the core sort of green biz mission was and how we are now really kind of getting out there into you know, the enterprise. And, and that's a really exciting place. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know even on the public sector side, too, I was meeting people at Verge that were working at local water utilities and all kinds of sort of in the weeds jobs that don't have anything to do with environment or sustainability in their title, but it sort of connects to these bigger systems that we talk a lot about. Exactly. And that was one of the things that I saw also at Verge, which was fascinating. I took a number of people out from, from a large organization uh, who, a public utility who had, I would say probably eight or nine people attending the conference. And um, five of them out of the six people at the dinner had never met one another. They all sort of knew about each other, but they all worked in different branches where they would (laughs) not ever really connect face to face. And so it was really a great way for them to sort of come together and meet one another. But it wouldn't have happened, you know, without without sort of being part of that sort of convergence at Verge. So, yeah, networking within your own company. Within your own company, yeah. <laughs> I didn't benefit, that's funny. Um, great. So then I also was curious just um, in terms of some of the 
fun things that we get to do at the events. I know at Verge we had, um, like, there was an EV charger on site, and you could do EV test drives. We've got um, tech food snack down where people are eating all sorts of crazy things. What are some of your, like, greatest hits, fun memories from events? Oh, I, I think, you know, we've had a lot of, of a lot of interesting activities at events. The the food tech snack down, I don't know if you've talked about that in other podcasts before, but that, that in particular is a favorite one for me. It's a chance to sample all sorts of new alternative proteins and to drink um, toilet to tap uh, <laughs> water, uh, all the things that you wouldn't normally do when you're, so <laughs> you're at an event. Eat some crickets, some crickets yes, some chocolate, <laughs> chocolate covered insects uh, and, and other, actually, you know, a lot of different types of alternative proteins there. So it's, it's fun and it's also really educational. And to your point also about the, you know, doing electric vehicle test drives was fun. I didn't get a chance to uh, try the EV bikes, but that was mm. definitely um, one that's on the list for next year. Yeah, those are fun. Um, so, all right, we've got we've covered a lot of ground, but looking ahead, the we have these events that cut across food, cities, tech, corporate sustainability, all kinds of different stuff. What's like two things, two or three things you're most interested in seeing how they evolve through the end of 2015 and into 2016 and beyond? Yeah, you know, I think those there's a lot of really kind of sexy stuff in terms of the food and ag tech. I think that's something right. that I'm really interested in following. It's it's something that, uh, and there's obviously a ton of interest around there at this point. I think there are some, you know, perhaps more mundane things that are those still really more game changers. And that continues to be just what's happening in the way of um, energy efficiency and in particular in the way that, you know, buildings and the built environment in way the ways in which we're managing that more efficiently through systems and automation i think that's something that is still just very at a very early stage and it's something that is really exciting to watch even though it's you know it's not necessarily sexy stuff but in terms of the way that it moves the needle uh, I think that's very cool. Yeah, I know we're starting to look more at logistics too, which normally I'd be like, oh, like dread that, but it's there's a ton going on. So definitely lots of good stuff to watch. Well, thank you, Hugh Byrne, for being with us. It's my pleasure. I also have to reveal one little secret here to our listeners. And we, we, we said we might or might not reveal this, but I'm going to just say it just for the podcast audience <laughs> and, and that there's one other thing about me that green biz readers don't know and that i'm really actually stephen j cogswell dun, dun, uh, dun. the uh the the nom de plume for all of green biz webcast and, and event mailings he is in your inbox and now he is in your headphones the real person yes we're coming full circle <laughs> this is great all right hugh all right. thank you so much for being with us my pleasure So this week, we ran two in-depth pieces on the state of Walmart's sustainability initiatives, which were authored by you, Joel. And I know you've been tracking these efforts for a long time. So why did you want to jump into these pieces now? Well, this is the uh, 10th anniversary of this great journey that Walmart set out on. Uh, uh, in October 2005, uh, Lee Scott, their CEO at the time, gave a really remarkable speech in terms of its introspection uh, and um, it, about where the company was. And the company was, you, you probably you know, recall, was pretty hated in a lot of ways. 
Uh, it, was, it was under fire on environment and labor and communities and all kinds of things. And pretty much everybody had a, a bone to pick with, with Walmart. And a lot of people still do. But it's changed a lot because Lee Scott made this speech where he, first of all, acknowledged some of these challenges. But he also committed the company on a number of different things on, on um, health care and, and, uh, and community engagement and minimum wage. But the thing from our perspective that was significant is he made three big bold, pretty audacious uh, environmental goals. One, to be supplied 100% by renewable energy. Two, to create zero waste. And three, to sell products that sustain our resources and the environment. Now, those are, you know, they didn't set any timetables for this. Those are kind of squishy in some ways. I mean, 100% renewables, even that can be squishy depending on you know, is it stuff that they generate themselves or stuff that happens to be in the grid? Anyway, I decided to take this 10-year anniversary uh, to take stock. And first of all, to tell the story of how this happened, because it's kind of a remarkable story. And second, to say, well, how, how are they doing? And actually, this week, uh, on Tuesday, Walmart held one of their, I guess, annual milestone meetings where they sort of announced how they're doing. So you alluded to sort of the origin story for this sustainability quest that the company's gone on, and what really resonated there for you? What was the most interesting part of that? Well, there are lots of parts, Lauren, but I guess what I liked most was the fact that here was this giant company, the largest private employer in the U.S., the largest grocer, the largest jeweler, the largest everything, pretty much. And the people they turned to to get help was a basically a one-man at the time consulting firm that later ramped up largely because of their engagement with Walmart, a guy named Jib Ellison, who uh, uh, got to meet Rob Walton, the uh, chairman of, of, of Walmart company, the part of the Walton family. Um, and uh, it was an uh, interesting guy in and of himself. He was a river guide, and you know they sort of got the, uh, the company recognized that they didn't need an expert on carbon. They needed someone to give them the lay of the land and sort of guide them through a journey. So, so Jib Ellison is one of the heroes here because he you know, just sort of became the, the, the Sherpa, the river guide, I guess, for Walmart. And then the other was the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF. Now, EDF is an organization that was formed in the 60s by a bunch of lawyers under the unofficial motto, sue the bastards, right? You know, that was, that was what they were all about, taking legal action against companies. And over time, they still do some of that, but they've, one of the things they do a lot of is engaging with companies. And you know, we've talked with our friend Bob uh, Langer from McDonald's and, you know, the pioneering of public, uh, excuse me, of private sector NGO partners was when McDonald's and EDF partnered back in, in about 1989 to, you know, help McDonald's address its big issues of waste and energy and, and lots of other things. And over the years, EDF uh, engaged with FedEx and UPS and a bunch of other companies, um, but they became one of several organizations, but the main one that Walmart turned to. And so, in fact, uh, in 2007, EDF set up uh, an office in Bentonville. They put two people in an office in Bentonville, the only environmental group to do so, and became sort of, uh, you know, they, they didn't take money from Walmart, although they did get money from the Rob Walton Family Foundation. Uh, but uh, it's a you know, fairly arm's length relationship, and EDF has long been critical as well as helpful in the typical good cop, bad cop way that environmental groups can, can do this sort of thing. 
but Elizabeth Sturkin, who is the managing director for corporate partnerships at EDF, who leads the organization, I spent a lot. Of, I've known her a long time, and I, and I did a couple, three interviews with her to really help understand the story. Um, one of the things that that happened in this journey that EDF and Jeb Ellison and his company Blue Sky did is, you know, they, they looked at these three commitments about zero waste, 100% renewably powered and green products. And it, it, it made sense and it occurred to them that, you know, none of this was really addressing climate change or addressing Walmart's carbon footprint. Uh, I mean, renewable energy sort of, but not in any holistic sense. And so they looked at it, EDF really drove this in partnership with Walmart and said, well, what would a, a, a carbon reduction commitment be for Walmart? And they settled on 20 million metric tons in five years, which represented, I think, 150% of their the increase in their carbon footprint that would come from Walmart's growth, because Walmart continues to grow. And so uh, what was interesting is that they, as they started down this journey, they looked at a lot of the sort of typical things around energy use in the buildings and things. And they realized if they did all that, they still wouldn't even get close to the goal. And so they needed to look deeper. And uh, well, I'll let Elizabeth Sturkin, from our interview, pick up the story of what happened. We started early on pushing them to address climate because we, Scott, had covered setting operational goals for their fleet and their stores, and Walmart had nothing on climate, arguably the signature environmental challenge of our time, and it felt like a real hole in their sustainability program. So we started talking with them early on about all sorts of different ways they could attack the challenge of climate as a the world's largest retailer. And that ranged from setting a cap on their own emissions, trying to be climate neutral, setting some intensity target reduction. And what we ultimately ended up with was this supply chain product life cycle carbon reduction goal. And the 20 million metric tons number came from the number estimated to offset their scope one and two emissions, so their emissions from their purchased electricity and their fleets, essentially. And this was the right climate goal for Walmart to set because they were already doing a lot on their own stores and trucks, but their real power is to drive supply chain change. And this put it out there that they were going to try and wring carbon from their supply chain or the life cycle of their products. And so it really threw the doors open um, to try and look, look everywhere <laughs> for opportunities. We really thought this goal would be pretty easy to meet, and I think that we thought that because their CFL goal, they blew, they blew that out of the water. So we thought there's got to be plenty of other big chunks of carbon in the supply chain and in products. And, and there are, but they're not that easy to get at or drive change. And so we wandered along in the desert for a few years trying a few different things. And, you know, some of them worked okay, like changing the labels on private label clothing to specify washing in cold water, and that actually required an, an FTC change. And so, you know, some, some really good innovative projects trying to come up with 
low flow shower heads and you know, some good work, but just wasn't getting the big results that we needed. We were not going to reach the goal. Um, we were not on the path to meeting our timeline, which is a five, is a five year goal. And so EDF took a step back and working with Walmart looked across their supply chain and products and tried to figure out where the biggest chunks of carbon were and then overlaid that with sales data. So, you know, there's bigger opportunity in something they sell more of. And that's where, for example, we figured out that fertilizer was a huge, the biggest greenhouse gas reduction opportunity in their supply chain because they are such, they're, you know, over 60% of their sales uh, come from grocery. They're the the U.S.'s biggest grocer. Um, They sell a ton of food products that have fertilizer in them in in every form. For example, beef, the the feed that goes into, that feeds the beef, um, the corn that feeds the beef is, you know, fertilized. And um, corn syrup going into soda, all sorts of different products had fertilizer in them as a big carbon reduction opportunity. And, and, and the reason why that's such a big opportunity is that if the a nitrogen doesn't get taken up by the corn plant, it gets washed downstream to create water quality problems, but it's also a greenhouse gas that's 300 times more intensive than carbon. It's a, added up in aggregate the number of products they sell, the amount, the intensity of that particular greenhouse gas means that that is a huge reduction opportunity. And so we looked across all of their product categories and added in sales and then figured out where the biggest opportunities were. This is one where they really are driving entire supply chain change and they're using their power to get the biggest chunks of carbon out of the supply chain. They are touching all the way down to the farm, which is unexpected and yet is really working. They are beginning to affect the entire ag system in the U.S. This is also one where EDS could play this unique role in having had years of experience on the ground with farmers figuring out with farmer networks how to optimize fertilizer use and figured out that fertilizer is the farmer's biggest uh, input cost, so there's a direct financial benefit to optimizing fertilizer use for farmers. So there's a real win-win there, and that's ongoing work that is really just beginning, and yet um, I see just on a, a steep trajectory to begin to create change where, you know, nothing else has been able to create that change, not regulatory change, not, um, you know, any kind of efforts at the ground level. Um, Nothing has been able to spur the kind of change and focus on this opportunity until Walmart came along. So it turned out that that fertilizers from the things that Walmart suppliers grow, or sometimes it's Walmart suppliers, suppliers, supplier 
you know, really uh, out there, literally in the field. Uh, that was a big part of their carbon footprint. And by the way, it's the same thing McDonald's looked at when they looked at the beef. Uh, they did a study with WWF about their beef uh, carbon footprint, that the biggest part of it was the fertilizer that grew the the, the alfalfa and other things that the cat, that particularly U.S. cattle eat, the, the grass-fed, I mean, grain-fed cattle, that was the biggest part of that. So if they could either change that or get, get these cattle off of, off of grain and onto just sort of natural grass, that would hugely reduce the carbon footprint. So that's how they did it. But how is Walmart actually doing in, in reining in this complex supply chain and hitting these pretty ambitious goals? Well, they're making progress. Uh, at the milestone meeting they had uh, on Tuesday, they announced that they, yes, they had uh, met and actually exceeded their 20 million metric tons. Uh, they've um, just doing a lot of, of, of different things. Uh, the renewable energy commitment to be 100%, they're now at, they say, at 26%. Uh, different countries, it's higher, different countries, lower, it's actually 14% in the, in the United States, but company-wide, it's 26 And of that 26 10% is from actual projects that they've built or caused to happen. And 16% is just from the renewable energy that's part of the grid that local utilities all seem to have, you know, 10 or 15%. So they're making it slow going. They're getting uh, on the waste, they're like 82%. On the green products thing, which is obviously the, the hardest to define, they're doing some interesting things. It's a long journey. You know, they've got a long way to go. But uh, I have to say, I was impressed with the things that they're doing that they don't really talk about that often that are sort of going on behind the scenes and how a big, big company can do little things with huge results. I have to say that on the flip side, I am still a little curious. You alluded earlier that a couple of years ago, you couldn't throw a brick without hitting, you know, 10 really vehement Walmart critics. So how was it in your reporting to to find people that are out in the world evaluating these things? You know, it was it was a little bit challenging, um, and I even asked I asked the EDF I asked some of the others said well who who should I talk to who will say because the, the you know EDF is uh, you know they're pretty close to Walmart but they're also pretty impressed and Fred Krupp the the president of EDF uh, you know he I, I he is very bullish on on Walmart and and I wanted to get another opinion and nobody really could name any critics the only one who's really out there is uh, a woman named Stacy Mitchell, who's the co-founder of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who's been sort of the, the uh, almost a profession out of uh, being a critic of Walmart and, and actually you know, some others like Amazon and some others taking on their claims. She put out a press release uh, at the same time as the milestone meeting that, said, that the title said, after a decade, Walmart shows little progress on sustainability. I mean, this is where progress is definitely in the eye of the beholder. So back in Oakland, I am joined now by GreenBiz.com managing editor Elsa Wenzel, who's here to give us a look at the week ahead. What do we got going on, Elsa? Hi. Well, we've got a lot of great stories coming in right now. Everybody's working overtime before the holidays strike. So just in time for Thanksgiving, um, you, Lauren, are going to name some Green Biz turkeys, um, companies that have earned a spot on our wall of shame. So we're looking at you, Volkswagen. <laughs> gobble, gobble, gobble. Boiler alert. <laughs> right. Um, 
And also the short holiday week will feature stories about materials marketplaces with GM playing a starring role. Uh, more on the circular economy, innovation in food, big climate goals for the world's nations, and a lot more. Of course, we'll continue to have ongoing coverage in the run-up to COP21. Merci beaucoup. Uh, we'd like to hear your stories about the road through Paris, as well as your year-end insights about both 2015 and the year ahead for 2016. So if you would like to contribute a story to GreenBiz, please feel free to send me a pitch. Just write me at elsa at greenbiz.com. That's E-L-S-A, just like the frozen character, at greenbiz.com. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And then in terms of, you mentioned COP, that reminds me, we've got a couple of free events coming up. We've got two webcasts slated for early December related to climate change. The first one is on the business reaction to climate change. That's going to involve some research uh, out of Ingersoll Rand and looking at who's doing what and why they're doing it when it comes to climate change. Uh, then on December 15th, we'll be looking at why tackling climate change is good for business. So um, with COP as our news peg, we'll be looking at the business case for climate action. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and the events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to Soraya Malconian for her technical magic on the recording and editing dials. We love to hear your comments. We've been getting a lot of great ones, a lot of fabulous encouragement, as well as some great feedback and other ideas. Keep them coming. Send them to 350 at greenbiz.com. Uh, we're going to take a week off for Thanksgiving, and we'll be back on uh, the 4th of December and our, with our pre-cop show before Lauren and I head off to Paris. Um, also, we mentioned last week that GreenBiz 350 is now available on iTunes, so uh, check that out. Just search for GreenBiz on iTunes, and it should come right up. We'd love it if you'd subscribe, and while you're there, just if, help, we'd help us out. Just rate the program and maybe even add a short review. We really appreciate that. Uh, and as always, for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business, visit GreenBiz and uh, subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, including our newly minted senior editor, Lauren Hepler. This is Joel McCower here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>